Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and twin brother, Christian Ubius. Uh, twin twin brother Christian, it's it's so fun to be recording this podcast with you, even though I invented you for the podcast. Uh, how does it feel to be uh, invented for, for this podcast operation? I'm glad that you finally chosen to have darker skin. Interesting. <laughs> we'll, we'll proceed without comment on that. <laughs> That's, of course, Christian is not my twin brother, and we have different skin tones, but... <laughs> In case anyone was wondering. Alas, in case the, the last names of Lentz and Ubius really threw you off. But we're, of course, referencing Charlie and Donald Kaufman, the characters that our guy Nicolas Cage plays in today's movie adaptation. As our Nicolas Cage blend of the month marches on. We are now into the new millennium. It's 2002 as we look at Nicolas Cage's career. Christian, I know for the first time, this is a movie that we are both returning to. So, you know, don't give away your thoughts, but I'm curious to uh, curious to hear how your feelings maybe changed or did not change for adaptation. But before we get there, of course, I am curious. How do you feel about the blend so far? I mean, have you been watching some Nicolas Cage movies outside of the ones we've been covering? Or have you been keeping it just with the three we talked about so far? I've been keeping it just with the three we've been talking about so far. My life is slightly crazy currently. So I, I, I normally try and explore... I normally try to see what else is out there. I have sadly not done the best job of that this blend. Alas, alas, Christian, for once, I am the uh, the person putting in the homework. Normally, you're much better about that than me, but I've been able to check out a lot of, basically, some of the better movies. Or I guess that's actually not true based on some of the movies I'll talk about. But I've been able to watch some of Nicolas Cage's better movies. I watched Peggy Sue Got Married for the first time, which he made with Francis Ford Coppola, which... Really, he's a supporting character in that. The star is um, Kathleen Turner, but it was his one of his like big breakout roles before Raising Arizona, so that was a good one. Was able to see Honeymoon in Vegas, which is lesser seen at this point, but still kind of fun. Is the one where he loses all his money in Vegas? Uh, yes, he racks up a gambling debt to James Caan's gangster character. And, of course, Nicolas Cage is engaged to Sarah Jessica Parker, who looks identical to James Caan's late wife when she was that age. This is a 90s movie, right? This sure is a 90s movie. And so... I I have seen the first 25 to 30 minutes. There you go. That's, uh, yeah, it's it's a movie where the rom-com logic is kind of crazy and the concept gets a little wonky, but what can you do? Uh, I also watched Next. You ever seen Next, Christian? No. <laughs> it's one of one of the uh, the terrible movies that Nick Cage made in the uh, the the aughts. Bef- while he was still a major movie star before the onset of his re- direct to Redbox days. So yeah, don't watch Next unless you want to watch a bad movie and laugh at it, or you're just like real crazy about Julianne Moore. Uh, otherwise, you don't need to watch next. I, I've seen the last 15 minutes of Left Behind. Ooh. I, uh, a movie that I'll need to see at some point for sure. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I'm, I, I hope that younger me never thought any of the Left Behind movies were were, were, were shining stars. Because, because they're not shining stars. 
it's okay, Christian, because present day you is a man of wisdom who who knows these things to be true, no matter what younger you thought. But that is neither here nor there, because we are here to talk about adaptation. So, of course, as we progress through Nicolas Cage's career, after he wins an Oscar and leaving Las Vegas, he enters a period where he's just a gigantic movie star. He's making action movies with Michael Bay and John Woo. He's making big romantic dramas. Uh, he's making movies with other auteurs like 8mm with Joel Schumacher, which is probably the strangest movie to pull when I said movies with auteurs, but made a movie with Scorsese, made a movie with Brian De Palma, he's even making David family Lynch. movies, made a movie with David Lynch, that was earlier than this this period, uh, but... Sure. <laughs> it was i'm telling you but we're now in a period of time where he's just like a big fat movie star and from what i know the turn of the century didn't go as well for our guy uh, he had some movies that weren't as successful as the 90s were for him but adaptation of course is a big success box office success it was made for uh, a budget of 19 million dollars and, and pulled back 33 so minor success there but went on to be nominated for multiple oscars including nicholas cage's second nomination i believe um, for this dual role of charlie and donald kaufman and of course gives him a chance to work with both spike jones and charlie kaufman who want to take a second just to talk about those two christian because i find them both to be really interesting filmmakers um jones of course more known as a director but he's had a a wild career starting in skate videos and music videos then progressing into being john malkovich adaptation and my favorite of his her which came later in the uh, 2010s of course he's also he's also known for producing the jackass movies that's yes like most people know him probably from the jackass movies and occasionally appearing in the jackass movies of course uh (laughs) speaking of movies i've seen recently i watched the original jackass the movie and he shows up in that movie as one of the fake old people causing chaos in downtown los angeles so yeah he's got a really funny career where he's goofing around with the jackass guys and producing their movies but also making these beloved uh oscar nominated films like being john malkovich adaptation her and so on so any feelings for for spike jones christian before we talk a little bit about charlie kaufman he appears for like a minute in moneyball and he he's fine in moneyball it's true. He, he is also an occasional actor, of course. Uh, he's in a few movies where he's not writing, directing, or producing. So he's one of those guys who he's just all over the place. And it's he's just had a fun career with the different kinds of things that he's gotten to do. Christian, I am going to mention this because you haven't, but he executive produced Nine Days. Yes, I did know that. I did so know go. that. I, I was like, good for you, Spike. You, you did good. Your guy Spike helped make your favorite movie of last year happen. So good on him. And, of course, Charlie Kaufman, who I'm really interested into your take on Charlie Kaufman, Christian, because you are a writer yourself. And Kaufman is one of the last truly famous Hollywood screenwriters where he's got a distinctive enough voice and vision that people might know who he is outside of movies where he's not directing. Uh, He has, of course, gone on to direct a few movies. Most recently, I'm thinking of Ending Things from 2020, but he's very well known as a writer, not just for his collaborations with Spike Jones, of course, but also uh, with Michelle Gondry for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and with George Clooney, (laughs) of all people, for Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. So, any thoughts on Charlie Kaufman, Christian? I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind has one of the best screenplays ever written. 
I, 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 I love that movie to death, and it is partly his inventive style. That being said, I don't care at all for Anomalisa. I don't like Anomalisa. I, I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm thinking of ending things, and I know that you did it. So it's, I think he's a weird screenwriter, and I think that's cool. And I think that he can produce some of the best, make some of the best things ever, and also not. Yeah, his 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 writing is, can be a little divisive because he does not really like to write straightforward stories. He likes things that are a little more interesting, a little more intriguing and thought-provoking, a little more thematic, a little more off the wall with the kind of images that he creates in his writing and that directors bring to life. Eternal Sunshine is, is perhaps my favorite of his movies as well, especially because it creates this world where Jim Carrey's character is traveling through his, his memories and his dreams and it's a very beautiful blend of director and writer, both um, Kaufman and Gondry, working really well to create these in, these indelible images that just stick in your mind after the movie. And adaptation has its fair share of, of interesting set, I guess not set pieces, but sequences as well. I, I did diverge with you on I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Weirdly, a movie where I didn't like it in the moment and then enjoyed our conversation after it more than the actual movie. So... <laughs> Do with that what you will, listeners. But I, it sounds like I also like Anomalisa a little bit more than you, although I wasn't crazy about it. But yeah, he's got a very interesting career. He he makes weird movies, at least weird in terms of the normal, typical Hollywood fare. So he's definitely someone that I would love to maybe explore in a future blend of the month, although we're talking about one of his biggest movies right now. All that to say, that is Adaptation. We'll quickly mention the other major players who uh, will come up in our discussion, I'm sure, being uh, Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper, both of whom were nominated for an Oscar for their troubles in this movie, Chris Cooper being the lone winner from this movie. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about their performances as well, Christian. So for now, let's get into this review, and here is your opening question. Last week on the show, Christian, when I asked your feelings about this movie, you specifically used the word unimpressed. The first time that you watched it, it left you unimpressed. And that surprised me because I find adaptation to be impressive in a number of different filmmaking aspects, especially now that I've seen it multiple times. I think the Oscar-nominated performances are well-nominated. I think Charlie Kaufman's inventive screenplay is fascinating, and I even enjoy Spike Jones's unconventional direction. So this time around, Christian, coming to it a little bit older, a little bit wiser, were you still unimpressed? Or has adaptation at least grown on you with a rewatch? Um, I, 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 it's grown on me a little bit. But I, I think the movie is way too weird. <laughs> and I was trying to see, like, is this really an inventive or, or really thought-provoking screenplay? And it's, you know, it's balls-to-the-wall kind of writing. But also, I think that it's more just... Uh, it, it's really weird, and, and the weirdness makes it not come together for me that much and there there are interesting parts to it and there are interesting parts that i recognize about it but overall it it feels like the sum of its parts gets away from it 
interesting parts getting away from the whole it's too weird man i i love this movie partially for its weirdness (laughs) so let's let's explain quickly just the the plot here the concept that we are working with because this movie is so conceptual it's (laughs) like we need to at least spell it out for anybody who missed a chance to watch the movie before listening to the episode so of course this movie written by charlie kaufman stars nicholas cage as charlie kaufman Charlie Kaufman in real life was approached to write an adaptation of the book The Orchid Thief and in the process got so caught up with the writer's block he completely reoriented his mind and instead incorporated himself and his frustrations into the movie. So the movie then follows a fictional version of Kaufman as well as his fictional twin brother Donald and their respective adventures in screenwriting as Charlie tries to adapt The Orchid Thief and wrestles with his own neuroses, his place in the world and his thoughts on screenwriting and so much more all packed into the movie and of course Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper come in to play Susan Orlean the writer of the Orchid Thief and John LaRoche the subject of the Orchid Thief so it's it this concept is so out there (laughs) that I always can't blame you for calling it too weird and I think it all comes together enough for me because there's so there's so much to latch onto, whether it be Nick Cage's performance and Charlie Kaufman's self-excoriating writing and how he conceives of himself put onto a giant screen for all to enjoy, or just the the themes here. A, a movie about adaptation, literally okay, in terms I, of like me, book let, to let me movie. Stop you for a second. Now. Okay, Christian, I'm just trying to monologue here. What's up? I know, I know, and 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 I've had enough of it. So, <laughs> look, this movie is about transformation. Like, even in the title, Adaptation, it is about being given a scenario in which you need to reorient yourself. And in the movie, it is about Charlie, played by Nicolas Cage, reorienting himself to the realities of adapting the screenplay and and growing in vulnerability and growing in in love for his brother, who is a, a fictional individual who is becoming a screenwriter. And it is about the transformation of Suzanne Orleans being played by Meryl Streep as she grows to understand what love is to an extent or, or what it means well... to be passionate about something or, <laughs> or, 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 or her like lack of that and what a lack of that entails for her. And I don't buy it. I do not buy Suzanne Orlean's <laughs> transformation at all. And it's I, I buy slightly more Charlie's transformation. But even it, it, it feels like we're too busy looking at these disparate, uh, I don't know, shots of flowers. And, and by the way, the cinematography here is gorgeous. I'll admit that. But it feels like we're, we're the, the metaphor of flowers and changing and what it means to see the ghost orchid and, and him coming to ask for help finally and becoming more confident-ish with women when he's not becoming more confident with women and Suzanne Orleans isn't actually changing anything in, in any way. It, it feels like the plot is just barreling forward at times with themes that are not cementing themselves with characters who honestly are kind of unlikable. Oh, they're highly unlikable, Christian. <laughs> I, I, but I think I like, the complexity I like there... No, 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 I like Charlie to an extent. 
Well, sure, to an extent, because he's the lovable loser in some respects, and Kaufman writes him in such a way that he makes fun of himself almost the entire way through, but still you kind of feel some sympathy for this guy. But I think the complexity is one of the the key reasons to watch the movie and, and what I enjoy so much about the movie, because... We have these dual storylines where we're seeing Charlie's attempts to write the screenplay and the screenplay, or at least the story of the Orca Thief, kind of unfolding before they converge at the end. And he, after inserting himself into the movie, inserts himself into the movie in the movie. <laughs> That's like those complexities are what makes this movie so fun. Of course, where there's there's concepts of the adaptation, uh, you know how flowers adapt and. We talk a little bit about the science of flowers, getting John LaRoche's perspective and why he loves orchids so much. But we also talk about the process of human adaptation. And Charlie, of course, uh, wrestles with his brother Donald, who is a little bit more conventional as a screenwriter. And Charlie hates formulaic screenwriting. But Donald sees more success early on by writing a conventional screenplay with the tips of real-life screenwriting guru Robert McKee, who's played uh, by Brian Cox. And... Charlie learns to adapt in that way, of course, and the the story in a way becomes a little bit more conventional. And we also are learning about the adaptation process of literally adapting a book into a movie. (laughs) uh, It's like naming your movie about writing a screenplay original or something like that. There's so much going on here, and I love the complexity, and that's what draws me in. There's too much going on here that I think it's dropping all the plates it's trying to juggle. I, I mean, because, look, I will understand if you tell me that we get a transformation or character arc from Charlie's Charlie's character. But are you, are you honestly saying that you saw a transformation in Suzanne Orlean's character? I mean, why are we talking about a transformation in Susan Orlean's because character? The, because the, 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 the title of this movie is called Adaptation. And part of him adapting her novel into a screenplay was us seeing Suzanne Orleans and what it is that she had to write down and how it is we're seeing her understand the adaptation process of an orchid and what that meant for her life. So again, this is where I I don't think we necessarily see a ton of change for Susan Orlean because Susan Orlean's not necessarily a, a real character in this movie. We see Meryl Streep portraying a fictionalized version of Susan Orlean. It doesn't matter if she's fictionalized or not. Donald Kaufman doesn't actually exist, but that doesn't mean that Donald Kaufman isn't in this movie and we need to see his arc alongside everyone else's. But I'm saying that Orlean isn't, like, her journey is not what's compelling to me about this movie. And I think what's fascinating is the ways that Charlie wrestles with conventional Hollywood storytelling and gives into it eventually as we get onto the movie. Like, for example... In one of his conversations, I can't remember if it's with McKee, the screenwriting teacher, or with one of his producers or his agent, but they talk about how the movie needs a Hollywood ending. And Charlie has consistently said that he wants The Orchid Thief to be a movie that's about these flowers, that is slow and thoughtful and is not conventional by Hollywood means. No action, no great romance. It's a movie just about what's there in the book that he's reading and people tell him he needs a more conventional ending and of course this movie ends in arguably a very hollywood fashion and the version of susan orlean that we get in the final sequence of this movie has nothing to do with the real susan orlean and that's why i don't really care about the way that her character develops because i'm far more invested in charlie kaufman as a presence as a character as a person commenting on himself and his own artistry through this movie it, it breaks the consistency of the movie and part of it 
part of that's the point. Part of that exactly. Is, it, yes, <laughs> I, I I got that. Part of that's the point. But part of that is also I need the consistency throughout to see what the natural progression of him understanding how to adapt this novel ends up coalescing and it doesn't really make sense because look first of all after i'm I'm, can i can i say a spoiler i'm just gonna go ahead and say spoiler yeah so we often go into spoilers in these reviews here's your official warning if you want to watch the movie beforehand I, i would do it anyway go ahead christian so donald dies in this movie yes and we get like a scene of him being upset and then a scene of how that's transformed him as a writer Donald, whom we've spent the entire of the rest of the movie learning to see how he irks Charlie, but how their brotherly relationship is actually incredibly important in drawing out the dichotomy that they have as twin brother writers. Uh, and, and, and now he's dead and we're not supposed to be a part of the grieving process. We're just supposed to accept that because we know Donald isn't real in real life. That, that him being implanted into this story as a screenwriting trick can just be accepted? No, there's no emotional closure there. There's no emotional closure here. It's just being given under the guise of this is what I changed in order to do conventional screenwriting, in order to be able to adapt this book. And it looks weird and cool in some places, but it's not a satisfying movie. Well, there is... See, I completely disagree with you there, especially in terms of the yeah, emotional... you're frequently wrong. What the hell, Christian? In terms of the closure that we get from this movie, in that Donald is not just a fictionalized character who, we should say, fun fact, he became the first fictional character to be nominated for an Oscar. Because, of course, this movie is written by Charlie and Donald Kaufman, and he's not real, but got nominated for his screenplay anyway. Um, Donald is not just this fictional character for Charlie to, you know, bounce ideas off with. He And, and my understanding of this movie, he is literally Charlie's more basically the temptation to be conventional in his writing. And he comments on his own, uh, again, neurotic personality, how he hates to write conventional scripts, but often needs to, to get his stories on screen. And he's able to present that part of him, both positively and negatively in Donald, who is unlike Charlie gets a girlfriend where Charlie constantly fails with women. He's very outgoing, very optimistic, very genuine and sweet, where Charlie is often a little bit curmudgeonly, he's distant, he is socially awkward. And so we're seeing Charlie not just engage this other character, but this side of himself. And of course, although Donald dies at the end, Charlie gets this moment of great emotional catharsis, both before Donald's death, as they connect in the swamp they've been chased into, and after Donald's death, when he sings the song to him and calls their mother in the movie and kind of doesn't share the news with her, but we understand he's about to. And then, of course, the final scene of this movie features him reconnecting with a woman who he has a a friendship with, who he was clearly romantically interested in but couldn't make a move earlier on, and he gets a chance to share his feelings with her at the end. And we see that although Donald has passed on, he has inspired Charlie to become a person who is more integrated with both the positives of Charlie's personality and Donald's. And so, again, it's this complexity where Donald is... Uh, is a fun character in the movie, and yet he's also this part of Charlie Kaufman that he's reckoning with on screen, <laughs> the side of his personality that he wants to be more like, and is trying to say to us he's, he's getting there. 
And so although, I, I don't know, I, I guess I just disagree with the fact that there's no emotional closure to this story, even amidst all of the weirdness and unconventional, unconventionality on screen. I just, okay, we don't get closure for Donald and what it is that he meant to the story. I just uh, described that to you. <laughs> and, and, and I'm telling you that it's, it's, it's I don't see that. I, I don't, what you said, I don't see. Suzanne Orleans, we don't, she gets, she was presented as such an intelligent individual who then becomes rewritten in the very last act as an emotional drug addict crazy woman. Exactly. It's amazing. <laughs> it, it's not because she was so interesting beforehand. She was actually trying to find something that had to do with these flowers. And Chris Cooper, we get nothing off at the end, even though he is a pivotal individual for how he is so able to leave one passion, such as collecting trout or I don't know, whatever it was, kind <laughs> of fish he's doing, yes. and then going on to to um, have his nursery of flowers and then go on to uh, collect these orchids. It, it, and he's just gone when he is the catalyst for so much of what can be seen in Charlie and in Susan. The movie ends, and I'm thinking, what the frick? You forgot. This... The movie ends, and he gets eaten by an alligator, Christian. <laughs> I guess not fully eaten, but attacked by. <laughs> also, very unrealistic portrayal of alligators. Uh, yes. And, and again, that's, that's the point. Because the end of this movie, they are commenting on the entire time. Because Charlie's not wanting to write a conventional script. He's not wanting to have a Hollywood romance. He doesn't want big action set pieces. He wants a movie about flowers. And, of course, not only does he realize he has to write that in within the confines of the movie, but, of course, Adaptation is a movie written by Charlie Kaufman. And so we understand that he is writing this Hollywood ending where the the characters are really drug addicts and they're trying to, you know, move this powder from this ghost orchid. It's not just about the flowers. And there's this torrid love affair between reporter and subject. And, oh, no, Charlie discovers them. That's the entire point where we're getting this Hollywood ending. And it, what's funny to on the head with the Hollywood ending. Instead that's exactly the point. No, no. You should have been able to realize at the very end. Oh, wow. It ended in a Hollywood ending rather than 20 minutes beforehand. Be why is it that the entire pace of this movie has shifted? But again, he's in his attempts to comment on his own his own artistry but also screenwriting in general that like that's what he needs to get this movie made he has he's saying look how goofy this is to get to the hollywood ending so it works in both a meta fashion and provides the emotional catharsis through charlie and donald that you need and it's not about susan orlean it's not about john laroche they're interesting to he's adapting to, this to novel and it has to be about these characters to an extent but of course ultimately we don't really have an adaptation of the orchid thief we have the we movie to, adaptation right because the orchid thief <laughs> Seems like the most boring book ever to adapt, but we like look, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this because we do need to wrap up this review soon, um, and 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 feel free to comment on what I'm going to say. I recognize honestly incredibly strong performances from Chris Cooper and Meryl Streep. Nicholas Cage, I liked, I I I, I liked a good amount, uh, and and again beautifully, like beautiful cinematography, very interesting directorial choices made. It is just the ending. I don't think fits the rest of the movie which honestly on its own is already weird so it it's it's i the I, ending I, I is supposed this. to not fit the movie 
I know, and I'm I assuring think it you. should have. I think it should have while subtly commented on how it was able to flip into it instead of come crashing down. Well, to me, this movie ends fabulously and coheres beautifully, but uh, alas, Christian, I will leave, leave, the, leave you to your own devices to see the light and, and understand the truth and be set free in the future. But of course, this is our Nicolas Cage blend of the month, so we got to spend a couple minutes on our guy, Nick Cage, of course, playing a dual role, Charlie and Donald. Uh, I know you said you enjoyed the performance. Is there anything that stood out to you in particular, especially that we haven't gotten from the previous movies? Because in Raising Arizona, we see both the more of a goofy side, of course, the Coen brothers comedy there, but also some genuine uh, moments of connection between High and Ed McDonough there. And in Leaving Las Vegas, we get a much more dramatic performance with some moments of dark comedy for sure. But as he plays an alcoholic who is dying to his addiction, it's a much harder watch and buoyed on his very incredible performance. So any thoughts here? Any Anything that you want to point out? You, you get a little bit of both of, of raising Arizona and leaving Las Vegas here. You get the goofy character in Donald and you get the depression, the systematic thoughts of failures that are hitting the Charlie character. And it's fascinating to see, and it does take a skilled actor to be able to pull these two things off. Yeah, adaptation and the Kaufman brothers, in many ways, is it, it? It's just not what we're stereotypically told about Nicolas Cage performances. It, it's not a lot of screaming and yelling, not a lot of over-the-top acting. It's for Charlie especially, it's very interior, very reserved, and there's tons of voiceover in this movie, which we haven't mentioned yet, but. He's constantly describing Charlie's inner monologue. And so there's a scene where he sits down to work on the screenplay for The Orchid Thief. And we literally hear him say, I need to get some writing done today. How should I start this scene? I want a snack. No, I have to write so I can reward myself with a snack. I really want coffee and a muffin. Maybe I'll get coffee and a muffin to encourage myself to write. And we see him walk through that inner monologue, which Cage is not only gifted with delivering voiceover, which of course they also make fun of in the movie, but also at, at acting his way through it, where, of course, voiceover can be used as a crutch, it can be lazy writing, but we see Cage working well with it, kind of acting his way through the process of thinking, which is a challenge. And, and so, yeah, I, I love this performance here. It's one of my favorites of his. Um, any scenes that stand out to you uh, that, that you think, wh whether Charlie or Donald or both, that you want to mention? Not, I, I well... I am I'm, I'm trying to th oh <laughs> yes yes when when they're disc when when Donald is talking about how he's writing a screenplay and, and in the screenplay he's going to have the murderer and the cop chasing the murderer be the same person and, and, and Charlie just asks how is that gonna work how are you gonna have the murderer escape on a horseback and a cop in a car chasing them be the same guy. He's like, that's what makes it brilliant. <laughs> I will say that, that was pretty good. That, that, yeah. That, that, that was enjoyable. Yeah. Cage plays both just the, the crushing sarcastic nature of Charlie across from the open-minded kind of doughy eyed silliness of Donald so well, especially in those scenes where they're acting across from each other, which again 
is a challenge to actually make these kinds of performances work because you can't act across from yourself. <laughs> you have to shoot these scenes separately and then you, obviously you can have a stand in there, but reg you know, regardless, uh, such a, a talented actor Nicolas Cage is, and this is honestly one of his best performances in my opinion. So alas, we have a lot to get to here at the end of the episode. As listeners know, this is our, our third movie. So we got some awards to get to, but that is adaptation, a movie that we probably could have spent another 30 minutes talking about and arguing about just the screenplay alone it is available to stream on hbo max comes highly recommended by me and maybe cautiously recommended by christian only if you're willing to engage with the weirdness so christian it's time for our nicholas cage blend of the month awards we've gotten to look at three of his greatest hits and somehow it feels like we missed out on so many others but we have three pretty good movies to choose from i think and we're going to start with a, a non-Nicolas Cage category. As we look at our awards and reflect on the month here, I want to know your favorite non-Nicolas Cage performance. So it could be Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona. could be Elizabeth Shue in Leaving Las Vegas. Maybe Chris Cooper or Meryl Streep from Adaptation. Or, of course, somebody I have not mentioned. But who is going to walk home with that award from you, Christian? I think this is kind of easy for me, though there are many good performances I, i'm pretty sure it's holly hunter from raising arizona amazing uh why why holly hunter uh because for me it's elizabeth shoe from leaving las vegas so what about holly hunter and raising arizona um stood out for you over shoe or someone else honestly it was part of it was the comedy but also intensity of how she has this commanding voice and still able to drive forward the plot of this ridiculous and absurd script and, and part of it was how well they are working as a duo, as these crazy parents who are trying to to adopt by stealing this child. <laughs> Adoption by kidnapping. Gotta love it. She is great in that movie, and I, I did consider her for this, but I, I had to go with Shu. She just jumped off the screen at me, especially because I'm not as familiar with her outside of something some of her um, more recent roles like The Boys. So I was a huge fan of her work in that movie. So empathetic uh, in portraying Sarah, the the hooker with a heart of gold. Uh, moving on, of course, now it is our best Nicolas Cage performance. And technically, you have four options, Christian, because you can split up the Coffin Brothers if you want. But otherwise, we have High McDonough in Raising Arizona. We have Ben in Leaving Las Vegas. And we have Charlie and Donald Kaufman in Adaptation. So who's going to take home the award for you? I'm going to go with High McDonough, and, and it's a very specific reason. High McDonough is the first and maybe only time I've ever seen Nicolas Cage in what seems like an effortless performance. Ah. Like, he is just gliding through these lines. And, and so often you see him, and you can tell he's trying. <laughs> and, and I feel like that would, he has a side to him where it's like so easy, and he doesn't show that as often. The effortless performance of High McDonough. I, I appreciate all of these performances, especially how they point out some of the different strengths that Cage brings to performance. But again, I'm going with Leaving Las Vegas. And I was seriously tempted by the Kaufman brothers in adaptation here because that dual performance is just magical. But I was blown away by his acting in Leaving Las Vegas, especially in bringing an addicted character, an alcoholic, to the screen in a type of performance we have seen often in in Hollywood stories but he acts with such empathy for Ben his character and 
really gets us on the emotional swings. It's not a, a performance filled with lots of screaming or with tons of drunken stumbling or, you know, falling asleep at the wheel. You know, there's a lot of small moments that stand out in that movie to me. And so I, I had to go with, with Ben and leaving Las Vegas. And lastly, Christian, best picture. We have given both of our awards to the same movie, at least respectively here. So will you stick with Raising Arizona or will you be picking something else? I will stick with Raising Arizona. Incredible. Uh, For this one, you you might have guessed it from the way that I talked about these movies, but I myself am going with adaptation for my ultimate best picture. Out of these three, I personally enjoy this month quite a bit. But Christian, I recall that you did not go crazy for Raising Arizona. So how did you feel about this month in general? It was interesting in that it's a bunch of movies that, that I'm not normally seeking out. Is it my favorite batch of three movies? No, but they're a different batch of three movies, so I'm okay with the month. It's, well, it's not like football. <laughs> I will always be grateful for our football blend of the month, but I'm glad that in curating a Nicolas Cage-themed month that we at least got you to watch some movies you might not have been drawn to originally and at least enjoyed the the concept of it all, even if all three of them won't be making your respective top ten of the year lists uh, if you ever decide to put those together. Yeah, I couldn't resist adaptation, but I... I definitely am a fan of all three of these movies. Would strongly recommend them to you, listeners, if you have not had a chance to check them out for yourselves. So, of course, our Nicolas Cage blend of, month, blend of the month is not fully over. The Age of Cage continues. And next week, we have got a special treat for you. So, Christian and I were talking behind the scenes, trying to figure out what we wanted to do for our bonus episode for the month, and neither of us have seen really enough Nicolas Cage movies that we could pull together a top five, so we figured maybe we can do a little more of a relaxed conversation, not a full review about some of his more notable, more fun movies, and so we talked about a few different options, considered a Nicolas Cage in animation (laughs) episode, although I don't think either of us wanted to watch The Croods very much. But ultimately, we decided to go with National Treasure. So next week, we'll be doing... And National Treasure 2. And National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. Yes, so next week, we'll be looking at... uh, I don't even know what to describe them, but again, peak of his box office powers here, mega movie star mode, Benjamin Franklin Gates going to steal the Declaration of Independence, uh, a movie that sparked many memes, of course, and we'll be doing it all with frequent friend of the show, Paul Yoder. So our guy Paul coming back to the show. Christian, what's your connection to National Treasure? I'm, I'm curious. When I was in elementary school, they were a big deal, but I don't know why. I, <laughs> I, I've seen both of them, and I like both of them from what I can remember. I just don't know why us as children in elementary school were like, man, we got to go see National Treasure. So it's confusion. I mean, it's it's because all of us were telling each other, we have to steal the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but <laughs> I'm really excited to watch these movies again, just because I tend, I, I like these kinds of stories, like big adventures. Obviously, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan, and these are sort of themed and styled, not directly descended from Indiana Jones, but that type of adventure movie with artifacts and secrets to uncover. 
I have not seen them in a while, uh, especially the second one. So I am very curious to return to these movies, and we'll be doing it next week with our guy Paul Yoder. I believe they're streaming on Disney Plus right now. They do, yes, they are. They do come from the, the Disney family of studios there. So check them out on Disney Plus and join us for our more relaxed conversation next week. Next week, we'll, of course, be announcing what we're doing for June. And Christian, you are in charge of curating once again. I know you're between a couple ideas, so don't give it away for the listeners. Always leave them wanting more. But have you landed on one of your two ideas? Yes. Yes, I have. Because one of these ideas is is easier since I've seen all three movies and I, and I enjoy all three movies. Alrighty. I'm looking forward to it, Christian. The two ideas that you proposed to me were pretty interesting, at least in in theme. It would get us to some pretty interesting movies to watch. So I'm looking forward to it. If you've been tantalized like I have for what we'll be covering in June, stick around. We will talk about it next week on the show. And of course, if you have reached this point, thank you for listening because we're wrapping up the show here. We do appreciate your support, listeners. It means the world to us. We recently put out our 100th episode of this podcast, which is just crazy to me. I'm glad that the good people at Podbean sent us an email to let us know. So 100 episodes of Cinema Trip. Crazy. Uh, But we love talking about these movies and sharing our discussions and having you folks follow along. So thanks for your support. There are a few things that you can do to continue to support the show. Number one, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Want to shout out my buddy Matt Pastoria, who wrote in last week with an email. And Matt, we are going to get to some of your questions that you sent us in that email, but also left us a review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you for that, Matt. Uh, He said, great, Scott. It's a pun. Get it? Something along those lines. And yes, I have gotten it many times in my life. You can also follow myself in the show on Twitter and Christian on Instagram. And Christian and I are both on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we're watching. And lastly, of course, you can send us an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We have a couple Pauls that we love here on the Cinema Drip Podcast. And our guy Paul Gonzalez is back with another idea for a blend of the month, Christian. He says it'd be interesting for us if we did all of the movies in a series. So something like Back to the Future or Shrek. Maybe do a trilogy. Interesting, Paul. We'll have to think about it. Shrek blend of the month, baby. Let's make it happen. But thank you so much for your email, Paul. We sincerely appreciate it. And we did pick Magic May from your suggestions in the past. So maybe, just maybe, it's time for another Paulie G blend of the month. But, Christian, that is our show. Any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Nope. Nothing. Nothing from Christian. Maybe, Christian, in your next script that you write, you can invent a twin brother for yourself. And you can engage your own thoughts on the art of screenwriting and uh, finding passion your own neuroses, maybe, and, just and, maybe. And he'll be white. <laughs> Perfect. I'm sure, that'll, I'm sure that'll make it to the screen in a very fascinating and satisfying way. But until next time, folks, I'm Scott, he's Christian, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.